Amen. Well, uh, this is week three of uh, live stream services only, and uh, it's a unique time, but it's also an exciting time. Uh, it's been neat to see what the Lord's already been doing in using these live stream services, and so we know that uh, a lot of our Calvary Prineville Church family and our Calvary uh, Polina Church family are tuning in. And uh, we just want you to know uh, we miss you guys. Um, if you're kind of new to that, uh, we started up a church plant in Polina uh, this last uh, July, August. And uh, every Sunday we've been going out in the afternoons to a little country town about an hour away from Prineville and just have been seeing um, just wonderful fruit and fellowship happening and uh, such a sweet, intimate time with the, Prine, uh, the Polina folks every Sunday night. And we're just missing that um, time with you all from Polina just as much as we're missing um, all the regular gathering from uh, just the Polina, uh, Prineville Church here. So, uh, But yeah, you know, in the midst of all the missing, we're so thankful that God has given us um, some technology to be able to be texting and streaming and chatting and calling um, I'm not sure that they had all these great uh, ways back during the Spanish flu um, epidemic, and so uh, we're certainly thankful for that. And so if you are uh, following Calvary Chapel Prineville, uh, every day we've been having a different uh, elder or a guy that's been trained up as an elder, training up as an elder, or part of the eldership in Polina. Uh, they've been uh, giving devotions every day. Sometimes it's 9 a.m. Uh, sometimes these guys are ranchers and business owners and teachers, and uh, they're not able to get it recorded and put it up, sometimes till the evening. But uh, just about every day, we're trying to get just some devotional, word of encouragement, contact point, and connection to the body. And so um, make sure to be tuning into that. Just have your eye open for that. Um, if you remember, uh, a couple weeks ago, we had a teaching on fasting and the biblical practice of fasting, and uh, we were on the calendar to start our normal corporate church fast uh, tomorrow, Monday the 5th uh, through Friday, and uh, because of the social distancing and the shelter in place, uh, it's going to look a little different than normal. Um, and what that is, is that Monday through Friday this week, so starting tomorrow, we encourage everyone who calls uh, Calvary Chapel, Prineville, or Polina their home, or any of you who've been tuning in, we encourage you to um, pick one meal a day. One meal a day, and it can be different every day, depending on just what works for you. Uh, pick one meal a day to abstain from food and to fast. And to take that time that you would normally spend prepping your food, planning your food, cleaning up after your food, all of that, uh, and to just spend that time before the throne of God, to spend time in the word, to spend time in prayer, to spend time in worship, to spend that time with your family, your spouse, and to seek the Lord. Um, and so that might be early morning for you, that might be your noon lunch break, that might be evening. Uh, it can be different uh, every day. Um, but seek the Lord. And I want to encourage you, normally when we're fasting, we get together at the church three times a day. We have huge community life when we're fasting and praying. And to kind of help keep that going, uh, we encourage you to 
at the end of your time seeking the Lord, being in the Word and fasting and praying and worshiping, just to maybe post on the Calvary Bulletin page something that the Lord was speaking to you during that time, something you've got on your heart. Uh, It could be a prayer that you might just type up. It could be something you read in a devotional that you might take a picture of. It could be something that you might want to make a little tiny live stream video uh, from your phone or just record a video and post that. Um, But uh, we encourage you to be a voice during that time of fasting and prayer, uh, to be a part of the prayer ministry of this church, and, uh, and don't be shy. I know it might seem awkward to post something or to video something. And, you know, I think that something the Lord's doing in all of this live streaming social media stuff is we're kind of getting out of the, okay, this is a little awkward or this is a little silly, and we're just realizing this is how we communicate with each other at this time in human history. And so uh, we just invite you to be just bold and brave and to share what the Lord's put on your heart. Um, With that, we'll be posting a little schedule of just kind of the prayer focus for each day. Um, And Friday will be Good Friday, and so the main point of the prayer focus will be we're just thanking the Lord for the cross. We're remembering the cross. We're remembering the Son of God coming and dying for the sins of the world. But every day leading up to that, we'll have a different prayer focus. Kind of over it all, we'll be just praying uh, for the coronavirus and just the world and what's going on there. Um, but also just times of repentance of sin, times of intercession, times of praying for each other, uh, times of hoping for God to do things in our church. And um, we're just excited for what God's going to do during this time of fasting. He's so faithful uh, to always meet us. Something else that we've got that uh, you can tune in right after church for is we will be posting on uh, the public Facebook page a little special Palm Sunday video uh, that some of the kids put together this week. And so um, don't go too far from your computer after the live stream's over because we will be posting and sharing uh, that video that has been made for you all this week. Uh, We're going to go ahead and get into the word now, and that is in Revelation chapter 21. We're just working our way through the book of Revelation. Man, we are on the final couple pages of the Bible. And so it should be pretty easy for you to find. You're probably two to three pages from the end of the book as you're looking there. And uh, what we have today, the sermon title, is A Glimpse of Heaven. All right, A Glimpse of Heaven. Uh, And so uh, let me pray for us as we get started into the Word. Lord, as we come from different parts of Crook County, as we come from different parts of Oregon, I know people are tuning in from around the states as we come from uh, different parts of the United States and the world. Lord, I just thank you that people are tuning in to hear your hope. And I pray that while last week was so sobering, looking at the great white throne judgment and a certain expectancy of judgment for sin and, uh, and the result of hell, uh, that, Lord, today we would have that great hope and the great light and that breath of fresh air to be studying heaven and to see all that you've prepared for us. What a glorious thing we get to look at today as we come together through the live stream. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I heard a story this week, and it may not be super theologically sound, but uh, it is a little bit humorous. And it is that St. Peter was watching the gates of heaven 
but he really had to go to the bathroom, which, by the way, happens in heaven. <laughs> uh, and so he asked Jesus to watch the gates while he was gone, and Jesus said, sure, I can do that. Peter needed some reading material, so he took the book of life with him and left Jesus there to man the gates without the book. As Jesus was standing there at the pearly gates, he saw an old man leading a donkey up from the earth. He noticed the old man had carpenter tools with him. When the old man gets to the gates, Jesus tells him, sorry, I don't have the book of life, so you're going to need to explain why you feel you should be admitted into heaven. Jesus would then make the decision whether or not this man could come in. The man explains, well, in English, my name would be Joseph, but since I'm not from America or England, uh, I, I do not have that name. I lived a modest life making things out of wood. Uh, I'm not remembered very well by most people, but almost everyone has heard of my son. I call him my son, but I was really more of a dad to him. He didn't really come into this world the usual way. I sent my son out to be among the people of the world. He was ridiculed by many and was even known to associate himself with some pretty unsavory characters, although he himself tried to be honest and perfect. My single biggest reason for trying to get into heaven is to be reunited with my son. Jesus was awestruck by the man's story, and he looked into the old man's eyes and asked, Are you my earthly father? The old man's face brightens. He looks at Jesus and he says, Are you my Pinocchio? I'm sure your living room is erupting with laughter right now, just like it is here in our fireside room. (laughs) There's really not much laughter happening here, so... (laughs) You know, there's a lot wrong with that story on a theological level and probably on every, in everything, any, every other way. But in Revelation chapter 21, we get a glimpse of heaven where we see the best is yet to come, in the words of Frank Sinatra. We're going to see a picture of heaven. We're going to see a little bit of, hey, you know, are some of these uh, caricatures of heaven true? Um, you know, are there really streets of gold? Are there really pearly gates? Is it St. Peter who is at the gate of heaven? Uh, things like that. We're going to see, you know, is that really mentioned in the Bible or not? But we are going to see that all things are going to be made new. That the problem of sin and the effects of sin have been dealt with. And what is, what is it like? to live and to be around when those effects of sin are gone. In the last chapter, we saw Satan try to lead one last rebellion. It was crushed without a chance. Then he was cast into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. All the dead were judged at the great white throne judgment. Anyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That was the second death. But now we come into chapter 21. We see there's no more sin and there are no more tears and there's no more pain. Already that just seems such, such a fresh life to us after, after going through the tribulation period in Revelation 6 through 19 and seeing the smoke and the burning and the ashes and the torment. Uh, now we have a crisp, clear, sunshiny day. You know, now we have the fresh air and the fresh breath of being in the presence of God. Um, it's it's going to be refreshing to go through this chapter. 
Throughout my life, I've often heard statements saying, oh, this man is so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. But that's not exactly a very true statement. The fact is those who are the most heavenly minded are the most earthly good. In Colossians chapter one, or rather chapter three, verses one and two says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. C.S. Lewis echoes that scripture when he writes, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversions of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth, C.S. Lewis says. You will get earth thrown in. But aim at earth and you will get neither. And so in this time of this global pandemic of the coronavirus, uh, I heard Alistair Begg say on one of his live streams the other morning that he was referencing how the church has been um, such a blessing during times of global crisis and times of plagues because they go in and they help the sick and those who have the plague, even though it means they themselves could contract it and die. And Begg's point was that because Christians have dealt with the problem of death, they know what's going to happen to them when they die, and they know that it's a paradise that awaits them in the presence of God, then they do not fear death, and so they're able to be all the more effective in this life now. And I think that as we go through the final chapters of Revelation as a church, as the people of God, we get this hope of heaven stirred up in us, and we're going to be effective during this time of virus across the world. I love what C.S. Lewis said at the conclusion there, that if you aim at heaven, then you'll get earth thrown in. It's a cherry. It's, a, it's a, an extra bonus. But if you're just living for earth, you're going to miss heaven altogether. Ecclesiastes is t- uh, tells us from the lips of Solomon or the pen of Solomon that God has put eternity in our hearts. And so there's something that causes us to jump when we hear of this chapter. Revelations chapter 21 through 22 bring us at the end of the apocalypse and the end of the Bible. It's a fitting conclusion to the historical drama that started in Genesis chapter 1. In fact, it's interesting because if you were to compare Genesis 1 through 3 and Revelation 21 and 22, you have kind of the antithesis of the things that happened that were results of the fall in early Genesis and how God has dealt with those problems here at the end of Revelation. So the drama is concluded in this book 
and it's exciting to read. And so let's get into the text. Let's get this glimpse of heaven in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And so heaven is mentioned more than 500 times in the Bible. 50 of those times are in detail in the book of Revelation. And one of the questions that we have as we study uh, Revelation and as we study this chapter is will God remove the old creation, the creation that we're actually living on now? Is God going to just be done with it and cast it away and even destroy it? Or is he going to keep it uh, and, and renovate it? Will he completely recreate a new creation? Or will he renew this old creation? Some thoughts on that he will renovate this creation and and make it like new again come from Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. It's a picture of what God does in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, making things new. And it says that the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to this futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God for we know that this whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now and so Romans chapter 8 speaks of this and I often mention it this craning of earth's neck For God to come and restore all things to that Eden-esque state. And so it's very possible that what God is going to do is he's going to purify this creation and recreate it and renew it. Now, uh, on the idea of an actual recreation, many take the following verses to get to this point. And that is that God is going to absolutely destroy this earth. It's done. It's gone. It will be obliterated. And he will just do a totally new, fresh slate, new earth. Some of these ideas come from Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Or like last week's study in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. John sees this great white throne judgment and the one who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fade away. And so they believe that in that time that uh, God's glory on the great white throne just caused the heaven, that is the sky, the clouds, and the universe, uh, as well as the earth to just disappear after the millennial reign because of the glory of God. People also get the idea of a completely fresh start recreation from 2 Peter chapter 3. And if you look at verse 7 and then down to verse 10, verse 7 says, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of godly men. We're going to see more about this fire in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away 
or pass by. Maybe you've got an NIV version on you today, and it means that they'll disappear. With a great noise, the ESV says that it'll be with a great roar, and the elements will melt with fervent or intense heat. They will be dissolved, one's translation puts it. That both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. All of the works will be laid bare or they'll be found, some translations say. If you've got an ESV today, you'll see it says that all of the works of the world will be exposed. Or if you've got an NIV, they're disclosed. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holiness and godliness. So there's a reason, there's, a, there's, a, there's an imperative that comes from what God's going to do with the earth on that day. Uh, man, we realize this is serious stuff, and God has a plan. And you know what? I want to be a part of his plan. So that should motivate us to live holy lives, godly lives. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to this promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, I mean, Peter really gets into it. He's using all these pictures of fire and um, fervent heat that causes the elements of the world to be dissolved and, and melted. And so, you know, personally, I, I can go either way, you know. Um, I think that it's a great picture of the gospel that God would take uh, this earth that, that was made, that was beautiful, and that he found to be good, and everything was good. As you read in Genesis, then it had this effect of sin. And I could certainly see from a Romans 8 perspective, all creation craning their necks saying, come make all things new not so much come melt us and get rid and annihilate us, but rather come make us new. And so perhaps the fire from Second Peter is, is really more of like that good cleansing fire where chaff would be burned away, just as a, a farmer will burn a field to, to, uh, to eliminate the chaff and the waste, but also create really good nutrients in that field. Perhaps that's what the Lord is doing here. Uh, Psalm 102, 25 through 26 says of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed. So as we kind of try to wiggle this puzzle piece around, you know, we, we do know that there will be a purifying. We do know that the earth is growing old and it's going in the bondage of corruption from order to disorder. We know that, um, that there will be a great change, whether it's a renewal or a recreation, um, they will be changed. Isaiah 51, 6 is a big passage on this subject. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath, for the heavens will vanish away like smoke. By the way, this isn't talking about where the throne of God is right now. This is talking about the heavens of, of you know, there's three heavens of earth. You know, there's the sky and there's the um, planets above the atmosphere and the sun and the moon and the stars. Then there's the third heaven. And uh, we don't believe that the third heaven is dissolved away, but rather um, you know, it's coming more from a purifying of creation. Um, the planets and the uh, atmosphere. And as Isaiah 51.6 says, um, 
The earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever. Micah 1.4 says, The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like water that's poured down a steep place. So definitely, see, man, there's some purifying work going on. There's some heat that's purifying. Luke 21.33 says, Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus knows that the earth, it's, gonna be, it's passing away, and it's, it's going to need to be um, recreated or renewed. Um, I like what the exalting Jesus in Revelation commentary says. Uh, Might it be that there's something of a transformation of the old order through the destruction of the old order? I think we are on good ground to affirm some type of continuity between the old order and the new order, though the new will be radically superior. Perhaps the judgment of Second Peter 3 is one of cleansing rather than total destruction. He goes on to say, what can we say for certain is there will be a whole new reality, a new kind of existence in which all the negatives of the first uh, first world will be removed and all of the discoloration by sin will be gone. So we know that God is the creator. He is also the renewer or the recreator. I'm not adamant in either sense. um, And so I'll let you get your Bible and try to determine what you think the Lord might do with this present earth. Barnhouse says, in this chapter, we see that the history of time is finished. The history of eternity is about to begin. In verse 1, there's also this interesting phrase here at the end that says, also, there is no more sea. There's no more sea. And so those of you that love to go to the coast for vacation and watch a good sunset disappear off the the seashore, um, you know, you may get really bummed out by that phrase. But there's also difference of opinion on what that might mean in the scriptures. Sea can speak of nations, it can speak of wicked nations, and, and often the wicked come up out of the sea, um, and it's typically the place of the dead even, and so, um, you know, it, it may not be speaking of necessarily the bodies of water, um, or it might just be speaking of a salt water, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that there's no more large bodies of water that we might enjoy in this time, um, One man says uh, from his commentary, as beautiful bodies of water were part of God's original creation, I believe they also will be a part of the new creation. Uh, uh, A man from Greg Laurie's ministry, Harvest Ministries, named Jeff Lazine says, no more sea does not necessarily mean no more bodies of water. Perhaps God will do away with the seas and the salt waters and replace them with large bodies of fresh water, which... We can enjoy in the same way the amount of oceans today and the way they cover so much of the earth's surface may have something to do with the global flood from Genesis. If so, then the new earth will potentially have large bodies of fresh water that we can enjoy in some of the same ways that we enjoy the ocean today. The bottom line is that whatever God has waiting for us will be absolutely positively better than what we have today. Moving on to verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So this is an exciting part of end times eschatology. We have Jerusalem in a new state. It's, this has always been God's chosen city, Jerusalem. It's always been where God has determined to have his throne and his glory on earth. And here we see her with a new name called the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride is adorned for her husband. So she is a holy city. It's significant that the, that the dwelling place of God is described as a city and a holy city at that. Cities are places for many people. People who will live in community with one another. People who interact with each other. Those of you that hope that Christianity can be done in isolation by yourself, I'm sorry, but you're really far away from a biblical Christianity and a biblical eternity. God has saved us into a community with one another. We long for that community. God himself is in community. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they love that community. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 17. And one day we will all be part of this big new city. Every one of us will be a little bit of a city folk. Um, It doesn't mean that's all that we are, but we will have a great place in this city of the new Jerusalem. It's going to be a place of life and activity and interest and people. It's very different from the Hindu and Buddhist conception of nirvana, where you would just be snuffed out and cease to exist. No, there is going to be nothing but sweetness in, in relationship with one another in the new Jerusalem. Uh, One man said, the consummation of the Christian hope is supremely social. It is no flight of the alone to the alone, but it is life in the redeemed community of heaven. That writer's name was Hunter. Guzik, David Guzik says, man has never known a community unharmed and untouched by sin. Adam and Eve only knew a limited community, and community in a larger context only came largely after the fall. Here in the New Jerusalem, we have something totally unique, sinless, and pure. It's a community of righteousness. It's a holy city. Uh, I love our town, Prineville. There's something so special about this place. I'm going on my 11th year living here, and um, I would be totally happy if God had me live out all of my days here in this town. Um, And yet, as sweet and awesome as this place is, um, as awesome as this place is, you know, you, you know that it's full of sinners. You know, it's funny. Uh, we have a Facebook page called Prineville Rants and Raves, and sometimes there's nice raves, and sometimes there's rants that can be a little bit cruel. And, uh, and a lot of times you can see, man, the sinful heart of even our sweet Prineville uh, neighbors uh, just coming out with claws out and, and the gnarling of the teeth, you know. Um, but how wonderful it will be to live in a community where there's no sin, there's no bitterness, there's no coups, you know, there's no uh, feuds, um, but we love one another and we esteem each other better than ourselves and serve one another. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 1, we have uh, just some prophecy about this Jerusalem. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garment, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean 
shall no longer come to you. So there's this new Jerusalem, a new city, and, and John the Revelator saw her come down like a bride or as a bride, or uh, he's referred to as, it's referred to as the Lamb's wife. Put on your beautiful garments. Uh, she's a new Jerusalem, uh, dressed in splendor. Galatians 4, chapter 25 and 26 talks about uh, a spiritual Jerusalem, a, a Jerusalem that, a, that is from above in verse 26. It's free. Uh, it's a free Jerusalem, is the mother of us all. Hebrews eleven eight says that by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to the place which he would receive an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. And if you just hop down to verse 10, he waited for the city which has foundations. He waited for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. So we know that there's this city, this heavenly city that, that Abraham was looking toward that has a different type of foundation. And that foundation is built by God himself. This city has been prepared, the word is used there in verse 2. She is prepared as a bride is adorned for her husband. This word prepared is the same word that Jesus uses in John chapter 14, verse 1, when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. So uh, this is a, a great section of scripture that points ahead to what we're studying today. Jesus went and he ascended into heaven, and for the last 2,000 years, he has been preparing a place for us. He's been constructing this new Jerusalem for us. Uh, he himself has been the architect of it. And in this house, there's many mansions. We're going to see a little bit later in the chapter just how big this city is and, and how it could accommodate all of the redeemed from all eternity. But Jesus has been putting a lot of thought in, into uh, preparing this place for us. And when it's ready, uh, things will be set in motion for us to go to this place. And so there's a few things that we notice from this verse uh, concerning the new Jerusalem. We have her name. She's the new Jerusalem, the city of God. We have her origin, that she's from heaven, not made with man's hands, but descends out of heaven. We have her character, that she is holy. It's a holy city. And we have her appearance. It's a beautiful city. It's adorned like a bride is adorned for her husband. And as we're going to see, we keep calling it with personification uh, to be a she or to be a her. Uh, significantly, the New Jerusalem, she is both a place and she's a people. And we'll look at that a little bit later in the chapter. But we do see her as a bride prepared for her husband. Those of you that are married, and especially the men who might be tuning in, the husbands out there, you got to have the most incredible view on your wedding day as your wife came out of her chambers and had her arm linked arm in arm with her father as he walked her down the aisle in all of her beauty and all of her apparel as she was prepared just for you. And my heart skips a little bit of a beat when I consider that day and remember what it was like to see Lindsay coming down the aisle being totally prepared um, just for me. 
Tim LaHaye says, since Christ instantly called worlds and universes into being, one can scarcely imagine the glories of this city that have been so long in preparation. For 2,000 years, this city has been prepared like a bride preparing herself in her chambers. And you know, I've never met a groom who was disappointed with his bride on his wedding day. Likewise, we will not be disappointed by our heavenly home that's been prepared for us. In verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, this is perhaps the most important aspect of heaven. It's what makes heaven heaven. And it is the presence of God that we will be with God. You know, if you were to take that out of the picture, what we would be describing today would be nothing but hell. It is God who holds these things together. It is God who makes anything good, good. Every good and perfect gift is from him. And sadly, I feel that, that there's so many of us that our Christianity is nothing but uh, what is often called uh, theological deism. You know, uh, our life is lived without much relationship with God or care for God or desire to be with God. We simply just kind of believe that he is and we wish that he'd kind of stay out of our way. And I believe that the Lord wants to renew in us such a passion for heaven that primarily is that we are with Jesus and only secondarily is it because of wonderful other things that we might partake of or enjoy? Last night we had the Pulse prayer meeting as a church, and it was a unique new type of prayer meeting because we did it through Zoom. And there was something, I think even with kids that were tuning in with us, there was something like 20 people kind of uh, praying and being a part of it and bebopping around the house as, as we were all tuning in and praying. And we began to pray for this next week's um, fasting and prayer time. And uh, it was Jess Olkers that was praying out at the moment, and um, she kind of had a bit of a vision or a picture um, from her day out gardening with the family and preparing the, doing the spring cleaning around the home. And uh, her and the family were uh, working in the garden and working in the yard, and she prayed out that, you know, we had to remove some pretty good-sized boulders and rocks that were uh, deep down and took some labor to pull up out of the ground and move out of the way. But she said, but, but the cavity that they left and the hole that those boulders left served perfectly uh, for a place to plant a flower or to, to plant uh, something beautiful, something that can grow and be useful and beautiful to the eye. And, and, uh, and it was such a great, just resonated with my heart that that's something the Lord wants to do during this next week as we spend time fasting and praying. And Perhaps you're even to set aside not only food, but, but TV for the week or Facebook for the week or something that's just got a hold of you that, that, you know, man, I feel like this is almost a boulder in my life that I'm consumed by. And if I would just let the Lord remove this boulder this week, then he will plant in us uh, something beautiful and wonderful for him. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, it, it's a pretty sad thing when we think of heaven and it's a heaven where, that, that doesn't even include God. 
You know, we're thinking more about being reunited with family members, or maybe I'll get to ride a unicorn, you know, or maybe I can eat ice cream all day long and not gain a pound, you know, and, and man, that is, that's pretty, it's pretty sad heaven, uh, you know, w- without Jesus and that the Lord might, you know, take away those things in our life that uh, are rival thrones to him and put a passion for him back in that place. But something that verse three tells us is that this wonderful truth of the tabernacle of God will be with men in that day. If you know the Old Testament, you've been even reading the Bible Project reading plan with us and watching the videos, we've learned so far in our reading throughout the year that God desires to be with his people. God desires to be with men. He wanted to be with the children of Israel, to have a camp out with them, you know, around their camp, to let his Shekinah glory be in their midst. God wants to dwell with men, and they want those men and women to be his people. It's Great that the plural here is preferred in the Greek, and it's the word ethne, and it speaks of all the multi-cultures and multi-ethnicity that's going to be represented in heaven, that God will be their God. God will dwell with us, and we will be his people. What does it mean to be his people? What does it mean to, at the end of this verse 3, God himself will be with them? How wonderful will that be, just to be in community with God as we're with, in community with each other. We get to be with God. I just want to be with you. I was telling Lindsay the other night, I just love being with you, honey, and that we would have that same heart with God. I just want to be with you, God. God himself will be with them. And he'll be their God. Something interesting about heaven is that God will still be God. God will still be Lord. God will still be ruler. God will still be master. We will still be his people. God will still be the shepherd and we will still be the sheep. And it's down in verse 7 that we see it kind of echoed again that, that he will be God, but that he will call us his sons or his sons and daughters. And so to be God's people and to have him as our God it doesn't only speak of, you know, service, which actually is a beautiful thing when you study the Bible, but it speaks of sonship. It speaks of that sweet and intimate and deep relationship that could really be described as a father with his son and a son with his father. This is all of the hope from Leviticus 26:11 that I'll set my tabernacle or my dwelling place among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Now, the interesting thing is if you were to read Leviticus chapter 26, that's about as short of a section in that chapter that God talks about something glorious. And then the rest talks about if his people will not obey him, if they don't follow his commands, then the judgment and the plagues and all of the other things will follow. I mean, it's a whole chapter of you got to obey or these horrible things are going to happen. But there's this little bit of like, but if you'll obey and be my people, I'm going to set my tabernacle and my dwelling place among you. And so as I was reading that this week, I was noticing that's, that's just a sad little snippet in the midst of a whole section uh, because we know the story that they did disobey God and God removed his dwelling from among them and they went into captivity as correction and many different times. To this day, things haven't been the same. But as we are in Revelation chapter 21, we know that the problem of sin has been dealt with and God doesn't even have to 
give that explanation about obedience and staying with him and, and, and plagues that could come upon us because it's all good. It's all good in the hood of the new Jerusalem now because sin has been dealt with and we are his people and we get to dwell with God forever, being in his presence. God himself will be with them and they will, and he will be their God. They will be his sons. The new living translation of this passage translates this verse as, Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. So the glorious thing about heaven and the new Jerusalem is that the home of God is with his people. We know now that the the Lord dwells in our hearts, that the Lord is in us and we have the Holy Spirit and that nearness. that's, That's a part of the kingdom of God that is already but not yet, all right? You know, uh, it, it's kind of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, that now we see it as a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I'll know just as I'm known. You know, one day we will see God face to face and he will just be dwelling with us. This is what makes heaven, heaven. And if there's anything that's a bummer about that, this is a good time to spend time fasting and praying this week to say, Lord, Tune my heart so that heaven in my heart is heaven in the Bible and vice versa. Charles Spurgeon says about this, this is the greatest glory of heaven and the ultimate restoration of what was lost in the fall. I do not think the glory of Eden lay in grassy walks or in the bows bending with luscious fruit, but its glory lay in this that the Lord walked in the garden of the cool of the day. Here was Adam's highest privilege, that he had companionship with the Most High. That was what made Eden Eden, was time spent with the Lord. Then that's what will make heaven, heaven. Moving on in Revelation, we're going to look at verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. What a hopeful and wonderful passage. What a comforting passage. Verse 4 is something that we all, in one way or another, have memorized, if not verbatim. Certainly we know that that this is a hope of heaven. Uh, It's a great funeral passage. It's a great passage to encourage those who are, are crying and who are weeping and who are have sorrow of heart. This first phrase is gold in and of itself. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The language is pretty strong for this wiping away. It's not so much the dab that we consider doing to our spouse or our children when they're weeping or even to ourselves, but the wiping away speaks of eliminating, erasing, and obliterating tears. Like the sorrow will be done with. And, and it's, it's strong and yet it's comforting at the same time. But being parents and, and being compassionate people, we understand those times when our child, man, right now my, my two little ones, Titus and Tatum, <clears throat> when they get hurt, they're crying. You know, you know the crying that's like they're out of breath in their wail 
and it's just silence until they breathe again and you're waiting for that breath to come so they can wail again. Uh, You know, that breaks your heart as a parent and you just want to take their tears and wipe them away and just comfort and hold them close. That is what the Lord does with sorrow. And Job, I'm just going to rapidly go through some scriptures dealing with this, but in Job 16, Job, of course, was going through it. It's in verse 20 that his friends were scorning his situation, but my eyes poured out tears to God. Psalm 6, 6, I'm weary with my groaning all night. I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. And the context of that psalm is that David had committed adultery and was dealing with the conviction and the guilt and he couldn't sleep. He made his bed swim all night long and was crying into his couch pillows with his tears. And there will be no more of those times in heaven because the time of immorality will be done with and there will not be that type of grieving any longer. Psalm 42, 3, my tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? Psalm 116, 8, for you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. So there's a deliverance of our eyes from tears. Isaiah 25, 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken, and it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I love that picture of it being a all the faces, and when you study Revelation 21, you're going to see the words peoples and nations used many times, that this is a multicultural, multi-ethnic heaven, and all of these different shades of skin color and pigmentation who so often had wet tears coming down their face from all around the world, these people will no longer have reason to weep and to cry because this is our God and we rejoice in his salvation. Revelation 7:17. For the Lamb who's in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. We studied that a number of weeks ago, these tribulation saints that come out from being martyred, and God will be with them. He's going to lead them and, again, wipe away every tear from their eye. Scott Duvall says, like a compassionate parent caring for a suffering child, God will wipe away tears. Every tear. And there have been many types of tears. I like what uh, Seiss writes. There have been tears of bereaved affection, such as Mary and Martha and the widow of Nain when she wept. There have been tears of sympathy and mercy, such as Jeremiah and Jesus weeping over all the calamities of Jerusalem. There have been tears of persecuted innocence, tears of contrition and penitence for faults, and crimes against the goodness and majesty of God. There have been tears of disappointment and neglect, tears of yearning for what cannot be ours. These and whatever other, uh, these and whatever others ever course the cheeks of mortals shall then be dried forever. No more tears. How wonderful is that? And the verse goes on to say, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor 
crying. It was last week that we studied in chapter 20, verse 14, that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. They themselves had an end. Death is done. And it was called the second death. That means that there will be no need for undertakers. There will be no need for grave diggers, unless it's the monster truck. I mean, I'm sure there will be rallies in heaven. But other than that, there will be no need for morticians. There will be no cemeteries on the new earth. Death is dead. There will be no more tombstones. One tombstone simply read, I told you I was sick. And another in Richmond, Virginia, where the body of Margaret Daniels is buried, has the inscription, she always said her feet were killing her, but nobody believed her. Well, Margaret Daniels, uh, if she knew the Lord Jesus, uh, she's going to be running around on some glorified feet. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six says that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And we saw that in chapter 20, verse 14 last week. Adrian Rogers, the late preacher, used to say, death is only a comma to a Christian, not a period. When we die, there's so much life left. Death will be dead. We also see that there's no more sorrow, which speaks of mourning. Maybe you know sorrow oh so well, and heaven seems so good because there will be no more sorrow, no more crying or clamoring or weeping. I was just considering how my kids cry right now uh, if they don't get to watch a movie or play video games or something like that. That's a silly reason to cry. I'm not sure that tears even show up in that type of crying. But there will be no more clamoring. There will be no more weeping. There will be no more pain. For those of you that have chronic pain, uh, which is something I just, I really can't grasp or comprehend what you go through on a daily basis. I've got some good rope burns from a branding this week and a bruise from hitting my wrist on the saddle horn. And this morning, it's been three days, and today the pain was the worst that it's been all week. And, uh, and I, it's just a little bit of pain that I can take some ibuprofen for. And many of you, you've got chronic pain that, that physicians can't heal. And, and you know, you have such hope today if you're in Christ Jesus because one day, no more pain, none, none ever. Uh, when I was uh, about 31, this is a number of years ago, a few years ago, I had my wisdom teeth taken out late in life, and that was not a great idea. And I ended up getting an infection from that little small surgery, and it was so painful. It was a Sunday after a Sunday service in the park, and I just got through teaching, and I was in so much pain that I went to the doctor, and they gave me some pain meds, and it was my first time like having real pain meds. And I took that pain, and it, uh, pain medicine, and it took that edge off to where that, that wasn't excruciating anymore. And it was then that I, man, I could sympathize with people with, with problems with pain pills because it took that problem away for me. And, and I would just say, man, for those of you that this is a life's thorn in your flesh, look to heaven, just as Colossians says at the beginning of our sermon. Get your eyes lifted up and have that earnest expectation and that hope, let your neck crane for that day where there will be no more pain. And right now, you can just let out a hallelujah where you're at, looking forward in expectation for that day. Lazine says, but truly, verse 4 is a phenomenal verse and promise. Think about this. No more sickness, 
or medical tests or doctor's reports or medications or hospitals or cemeteries or obituaries or funeral homes. No more death. The reality is that heaven is the land of the living while this world is the land of the dying. Thomas Boston says believers will swim forever in an ocean of joy. I was 19 years old when my dad passed away from an aggressive form of brain cancer. We didn't know it at the time. It seemed like he was just having strokes and hemorrhaging in his brain. And he was in so much agony the last night of his life. He was crying like a little child as he sat in his bed with a sheet over his head, uh, screaming in pain. And I just remember feeling so helpless, not able to help my dad. And it was a time when the nurses were on strike at St. Charles in Bend. And when, when he had another hemorrhage the next day that really took him out of the picture, um, me and one other nurse uh, and, and another family member and Ken Odegaard from Lakeview were, were the nurse team. And I just had a first aid class, so I kind of knew a little bit of, and was prepared for some things. And, and uh, we had to run my dad in his bed, in his gurney, down to surgery. Um, was part of that crew. But after my dad passed away only about five days later, uh, I remember watching my sister get ready for school. She was 15 years old. And as she was getting ready for one of the first days of school, she's reading my dad's obituary in uh, the Lakeview newspaper. And I remember just grieving, you know, that a little girl or that a young woman would have to read of, uh, of her dad passing on her last day or on her first day of school. And, and you know, th- it was a sad time for the family, no doubt. But we have this hope of it never happening again. There will be a point where there will be no more testimonies of this because uh, the kingdom of heaven will have come in totality. The end of the verse 4 has this phrase that the former things have passed away. If you read the New American Standard, that it's the old order of things. The prominent things have gone away. And the old things, old sin, death, dying, suffering, cancer news, reports, uh, viruses, epidemics, pandemics, uh, diseases, all of these things, it's done, done, no more. All those former things, they're, they're gone. And that is why verse 4 is such a comforting, comforting verse, but verse 5 is like it. Then he who sat on the throne says, behold, I make all things new. It's in the present tense. Behold, I am making everything new. Dr. Henry Morris from the Creation Research Institute, he's the late Henry Morris, says, when God finally completes this work of making all things new, they will stay new. Presumably, this means not only that everything will be made new, but also that everything will stay then new. The entropy law will be repealed. Nothing will wear out or decay, and no one will age or atrophy anymore. And so this is a great phrase. I'm making all things new. Things don't go from order to disorder anymore. We don't age. We don't, uh, we don't get crickety, you know. We don't uh, become decrepit, you know. Uh, he's continually making things just renewed, and the word new there is fresh. In Isaiah 43, 18, it says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. 
I'm going to do a new thing, a fresh thing. Now it shall spring forth. You shall know it. It will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters to the wilderness and rivers to the desert. I give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. And then he goes on to say in verse 5, Write, for these words are true and faithful. So we're going to be going through verse uh, 8 here, if you're wondering how far we're going, and uh, just finishing up verse 5 here, where Jesus says, Write, for these words are true and faithful. It's interesting to study that, because these are such hopeful sentences. These are such hopeful verses. They almost seem too good to be true. And the Lord wants us to know, oh no, they're true. They are genuine. They can be taken to the bank. They are reliable, trustworthy words that I'm speaking to you. These are not conditional promises or potentially true if everything kind of works out well, then this is how it's going to go. This isn't tentative news. This is for sure going to happen. And I was kind of chuckling a little bit because, you know, I've got four kids and almost everywhere we drive, you know, my kids want to know what's happening next in the day and what are we doing tomorrow and who are we going to get to play with. And, of course, this has been a little bit of a rough time for them, you know. Uh, maybe we'll get to watch a movie. Dad, can we play video games when we get home? And, and I just, probably like most parents, you might know how this is, um, when they ask to have a friend over or watch a movie or play video games. And many times you have to answer with something like, we'll see. You know, or we'll see when we get home. You know, we'll see what your mom's got planned. You know, we'll, we'll see. Or something like, maybe later. You guys have probably used that one on your kids. And you may, they say, oh, that means no. You know, uh, or yeah, maybe, or not right now, or in a little bit, we'll see. And, and you know, that all is just kind of a gentle way to say probably not going to be happening today, you know. Um, but with the Lord, he's telling us these promises of hope and comfort and no more suffering, anguish, tears. And he says, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. Get ready for it. It's going to be the best. And verse 6 says, and he said to me, it is done. That's, you can take it to the bank because it's already done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of waters of life freely to him who thirsts. Love it again, we're seeing in the book of Revelation, and it won't be the last time where Jesus is using the Greek alphabet. Alpha meaning A, Omega means last. It's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I'm the A to the Z, and I'm everything in between. I'm the beginning of history. I had the first word in history. I'm going to have the last word of history. And I'm telling you, Alpha Omega talking, it's done. These are trustworthy, true things. And this word of refreshment, that if you're thirsty today, if you're thirsty for more than what your life is giving you, if you know that the things of this world are, are not measuring up, then you can drink from Jesus. You can drink from the spring of living water without any kind of cost. It's free. You just come to the grace of Jesus and receive his gift. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, what does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there's no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. 
So, dear soul, whatever your state may be, you can surely receive Christ, for he comes to you like a cup of cold water. And so if you're tuning in today, and you're thirsty for more, or you're thirsty for this eternity that we're studying today, man, just take your hands and receive today the cup of cold water refreshing that Jesus has for you. There's three promises in these final verses we're going through today for God's people. Three promises. And the first one is full satisfaction for you. Full satisfaction. He's giving of the fountain of life freely. There's nothing quite like being so parched and thirsty in a dry tongue and getting that cool, crisp, refreshing water. It brings full satisfaction. C.S. Lewis said, If nothing in this world satisfies me, Perhaps it's because I was made for another world. And you know what? We were, and you were. You were made for another world. There's an old saying that there's a God-shaped hole in your heart that only he can fill, and you're trying to cram alcohol and drugs and cigarettes and pornography and lust and women and relationships and career and status, and it, you can't get it through that hole. It's not satisfying. It will never satisfy But if you come to Jesus, he says in John chapter 4 that you will drink of him and you will never thirst again. He will satisfy that longing and that craving in your heart. And today I want to encourage you as we're wrapping up that by faith, right now where you're at, you can just take Jesus and you can let him satisfy. You can just say, Lord, satisfy me today. Show me your salvation. Let me drink of it. Let it come into me that I can taste and see. There's a word of blessing, verse 7, and a word of warning as we wrap up in verse 8, that whoever overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And so not only is there full satisfaction, but in verse 7, there's full inheritance. Uh, I'll give him these things, is what one of the original manuscripts says. I will give you something a full inheritance but it's with the clause of if you overcome if you overcome if you're victorious over this world and if you receive the salvation that's in jesus you will be god's son and that's a little bit of a description of what we saw verses ago of when he is our god and we are his people what does that mean well it means we're his sons and daughters we're in that intimate familial relationship with him We have full inheritance as his sons and daughters, and we have full fellowship. It's a promise of a gracious heritage. But the warning as we wrap up is in verse 8, that the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You'll notice verse 8 starts out with the word but. It's a connecting word, and it's also a contrasting word. Verse 7 talks about overcomers and those with victory, those that that Revelation has the promise for, the overcomers, uh, and, and that they will have that fellowship and inheritance with God. It's the good news of the hope of heaven and fellowship with God and and relationship restored. But in contrast, we have just 
it's not an exhaustive list of sin, but it's a list of people who were not overcomers. And the first group are called cowardly. And it's kind of interesting. You might not think of the cowardly lion, you know, maybe being someone that would not be going to heaven, but would be going to the lake of fire. You know, boy, he's going to hell for sure. No, you know, it's not necessarily something we think of. But cowardly speaks of someone that's fearful and timid and will not receive Jesus because of that timidity. And the interesting thing is the only place that we see this word coward being used is right here in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. And it literally means faithless. They're cowards because they don't have faith in the Savior. It's the same type of people that were sent in to spy out the promised land. But when they came back, they gave a bad report because they were scared. They didn't have faith in their God. They saw everything around them as being a better and stronger thing than God. And so they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And so when you see a cowardness here, it speaks of faithless. Leon Morris says, is cowardice enough to send a person to hell? John is not speaking of natural timidity, but of that cowardice, which is the last resort, chooses self and safety before Christ. John Trapp spoke of these cowardly recreants, white-livered milksops that put in their horns for every pile of grass that touches them that are afraid of every new step. But then we also see in this list of those that we are warned not to be those who are unbelieving. The original Greek says, and sinners. The unbelieving and sinners. And you might look at Hebrews 3.12 that says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart of unbelief, or rather an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. So to have unbelief is to have an evil heart. And I like to pray when it comes to things like this, the prayer of the father with the demon-possessed son in Mark chapter 9. Well, then, Lord, I believe. And if there's any bit in me that has unbelief, help me in that. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. The abominable speaks of those that do things that God abhors and detests. The language speaks of them stinking. Uh, you know, it, it's a horrible smell because of their sin. The abominable and murderers. And Jesus brings it home in Matthew chapter 5, and John does as well in 1 John 3.15, when he talks about if you are angry with your brother or you hate your brother in your heart, You've murdered them in your heart because hate is the kernel of sin that leads to murder. And Jesus says it's the same thing. And so right now you might say, well, gosh, I certainly hate some people. And today would be a good day to repent, confess your sin of hate and murder to the Lord and to let him forgive you and make you an overcomer today. Anyone who's sexually immoral, uh, that goes outside of God's design and intend for sexual intimacy. Uh, it's the Greek word pornois. Um, and so it doesn't take a, a degree to see, you know, how that could be relevant for us today. Pornography, sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, kind of junk drawer term that just anything that you might think of that is immoral sexually goes in that drawer. Sorcerers will not be 
in the new Jerusalem. So you might think, well, I'm good because, you know, I haven't cast a spell on anybody in a while and I've had my big cone-shaped hat with stars and moons on it. It's been sitting in the closet for about 10 years. Well, sorcery in the Greek is the word pharmakia, where we get pharmacy, and it speaks of drugs or poison and a magician who would use drugs as part of their dark arts. And uh, I've never done drugs, but I've talked to a lot of people who have, and they speak of the trances that you go in and the places that you go and the things that you see when you do drugs. My pastor from Lakeview would tell in his testimony of, of the acid that he would do and, and the black magic that was all a part of it. And he actually got saved because when he was tripping one day, uh, he went on this out-of-body experience uh, into town and saw his face in a mirror. And uh, supposedly, if you see your face in a mirror when you're in the midst of one of these trances, it means you're going to die. And that is exactly what caused him to run away from the sin and to run into the arms of Jesus and to run away from sorcery and pharmakia and drug use. Idolaters, those that worship idols are mentioned here. Anyone who's a liar, false testifier, who's deceitful, in uh, the New Testament speaks so often of putting away lying because we're part of one another. We love one another. Don't lie one another. And it says there at the end of verse 8, they will have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So we've had such a wonderful day today going through what heaven looks like, and we've just touched on it, and there's just still this warning and, it, and it's just a little bit of a, a good thing here in the middle of it because we still have hope today. Here in 2020 Prineville, we have hope today to turn away from our sin and to be overcomers. And so we've been given the hope of heaven and we want that. Well, then the Lord says, so then be an overcomer today and turn from your sin, repent of your sin and receive forgiveness. And so we are going to... Um, close out here today with giving you an opportunity where you are at, at your home, in your office, you know, maybe you're, you're streaming through a big screen TV with your whole family watching, maybe you're huddled around a TV, a computer, a laptop, maybe you just have a cell phone out on a counter, but right now is the day, today is the day, and right now where you're at is the place that God in his grace has given you to become an overcomer, to be a champion, and to have victory over sin, to have victory and to be set apart for the kingdom of heaven that we've read about today. And so if you want to set your things aside, I want to just go to prayer with you in your homes and out there on your remote locations. And I want to, if you'll just go ahead and bow your head and close your eyes, I want to give you an opportunity. Today, the book of Hebrews says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. But today if you will hear his voice, turn to God. Today if you will hear his voice, don't think, oh this is awkward, I'm with my family, or it's kind of dumb uh, to be over the live stream. I had a, a friend that I was preaching the gospel to on a phone once, and I asked him if I could pray for him on the phone, and he said, no, 
I don't think I want to receive Jesus right now because it's awkward on the phone. And just, man, forget about that. That person might perish in his sins because he didn't receive Jesus that day. And, and so today where you're at, just push awkwardness aside and be like the people in the Bible that are like little kids that run to Jesus and fall down at his face and say, Lord, help me, have mercy on me, and cry out to Jesus today. Those of you that are cowardly, those of you that have not been living for Jesus because it'll be painful or embarrassing or you'll be mocked or it will be a big change to your life that you're not sure you want to do, you've been timid and so you've been putting off becoming a Christian. Today, repent of being a coward. Confess being a coward to the Lord. Say, Lord, I know I've been a coward and I want to turn away from that today and be bold and courageous for you. Maybe you've been unbelieving and faithless. Maybe you've been immoral. You've just been overcome with lust. And today God wants to make you an overcomer. Maybe you've been lying and you've been hating people in your heart. You've been murdering them in your heart. Maybe you've murdered somebody. Maybe you have... um, You've been doing abominable things. Uh, The homosexual lifestyle is called an abomination in the Bible. And maybe you would turn from that. You would turn from gross idolatry. And just confess it to the Lord today. Just say, Lord, I see what you see. This is sin. The Bible calls it sin. And my sin separates me from you. But Lord, I want to be brought near today by the blood of Jesus. And if that's you today, and you are praying that to the Lord, just know that He hears you. And something that He wants to give you in exchange for your confession of sin and repentance and turning from sin, He wants to give you living water to drink. And maybe if you're there today, you would just lift up your hand to receive living water from Jesus. Fresh life from Jesus. He will give you the Holy Spirit in your heart to change you and to make you a new creation, to give you power to want to live for Him. And if you have the faith today, would you even lift your hands up? Maybe even a position of receiving from the Lord that cup of fresh living water so that you'll never thirst again. And Lord, you see from house to house people that are praying out to you and crying out to you and lifting up their hands Lord, would you give them that cool, crisp, satisfying, refreshing drink from your throne room today, the living water, God. Give them new life. Give them salvation. Give them streams in the desert so that they could declare, this is our God. He is making all things new today. And so, Lord, as people are responding to you, would you pour your spirit out on their homes, on their lives, give them a new heart, a new mind that can know you and wants to be with you. Give them a new outlook on heaven where the best thing about it is that they'll be with Jesus. And Lord, for all of us who are Christians today, this is also the longing of our heart, God, that we would take a fresh new draft of living water and receive from you life in Christ. Strength for today, strength for tomorrow that we could know you and be with you and live for you as overcomers. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.